Christchurch, New Malden, 25th of October 2020. Nathan Larkin speaking on a fresh take on baptism. So, a fresh take on baptism. Well, for those of you who are really on the ball, you may be thinking, hey, didn't we have a fresh take on baptism a few weeks ago from Stephen? What could possibly have changed in the world of baptism in a few weeks? Is this a fresher fresh take? Well, no. I'm not about to denounce anything from Stephen's sermon a few weeks ago. This isn't a mini Christchurch rebellion. But when I came to think of the many things that my understanding of has evolved on over the years, I kept coming back to baptism. So this morning you're not going to get a rerun of Stephen's sermon, and nor are you going to get a detailed breakdown on the theology of baptism. If you want that, perhaps you might think of picking up a copy of Stephen's latest book. Christmas is just around the corner after all. No, what I'm hoping to share with you this morning is a little bit of my journey with baptism. How my understanding of what it is has evolved through the years and what I think it means for us to respond to baptism in practice. I myself was baptised as a teenager. Some of you may already know, but I was raised in a Baptist church back home in Northern Ireland, and my parents are still proud Baptists. We are Baptist by conviction, not by circumstance, my dad would often joke. So when I told them that instead of coming home to Northern Ireland after my gap year in London had finished, that I was going to take a job in a Church of England church, I wasn't sure what they were going to think. But in truth, they were actually really proud and excited about me moving into ministry full time. Even still, when I first began working here, it did take quite a while to get my head around the idea of baptising children. As I said, the Baptist church I grew up in had only practised what they called believer's baptism, or the baptism of those who were old enough to articulate and publicly declare their faith. It was actually commonplace, and still is in most Baptist churches, to re-baptise those who had been baptised as children, as they had not yet been properly baptised. They've only been sprinkled. But what I was taught, and what I firmly believed, was that scripture was clear on the issue. I was pointed to the fact that the Greek word baptizo means to plunge under water. But that was only the half of the argument. In addition to the method of baptism, there was the matter of timing. Believer's baptism, as understood by most Baptists, was by full immersion after a profession of faith had been made. They would ask, how could it be a believer's baptism? The child doesn't know its own name yet, much less the name of Jesus. These were all perfectly valid arguments, and they made good sense when we were talking about what should happen when someone comes to faith later in life. But looking back, what I had become increasingly aware of was that they didn't make sense when we were talking about me. I was raised as a follower of Jesus in a loving Christian family. I am so thankful for the fact that I can't remember a time that I didn't know and believe in God's love for me. And although my ability to understand and articulate what that faith meant developed a lot over the years, I am absolutely clear that there was no one moment that I can pinpoint becoming a Christian. Now, I love that. And that's what I hope for all of our children here at Christchurch. That security and that knowledge of God's love 
that sense of belonging to God's family and the certainty that we are valued. In practice, my parents got it 100% right when it came to raising me in faith, even if it didn't completely match what we were being taught about it theologically. This discomfort about my status as a Christian rarely surfaced because I was being made feel so welcome in God's family. But I was very aware that until I could articulate a moment that I had become a Christian, and until I was baptised, that I couldn't become a full member of the church. So I began talking about how I had become a Christian at the age of four. Not because I truly felt that I hadn't been one before then, but because I knew that it was expected for me to be able to identify a time when I moved from not believing to believing. I always felt a little uncomfortable saying this, as I didn't really believe it was true. But because I was told that being a Christian was based on my understanding of Jesus' sacrifice and my signing up to follow him, I justified it by telling myself, how much could I really have understood before I was four anyway? Other than that mild discomfort, I basically made my peace with it and didn't think much more about it. That was until about three and a half years ago when this little lady came along, my daughter, Emily. All sorts of questions became more important for both Anna and myself. Questions about how we would want to raise Emily, what we wanted most for her, and how we might nurture her faith. Not least of which was the question, were we going to baptise her? Anna had also been raised in a Baptist church and was herself baptised as a teenager. But as we spoke, we discovered that many of our experiences of confusion about at which point we became a Christian and our status for many years as definite Christians who still weren't baptised yet was at very best confusing. Two things that we had both been taught very clearly about baptism was that it was for believers only and that the process of going in and out of the water was not magical, but that it was simply an outward symbol of what had happened inside of us when we had decided to follow Jesus. This is based largely on what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is therefore a little like a reenactment of what happened to Jesus, in which we identify with Christ by participating symbolically in his death, burial and resurrection. And to be fair, visually speaking, Full immersion in the water does serve that symbolism better than what we often practice with children. However, much more important than the method we use is the understanding of what's actually going on when someone is baptised, whatever their age. For those who focus on adult or believer's baptism, the core value of what's happening is that it is us demonstrating that we have become connected to Jesus through our decision to follow him. So that's one way to look at it. But I think that if we leave it there at only that, then we're at risk of missing what is probably the most important aspect of what baptism is all about. 
You could say that if our choosing to follow God is one side of the baptismal coin, then the other side is God's promise to us. His promise of grace, love and acceptance into his family. We saw this promise marked in the Old Testament through the practice of circumcision. But through Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension, that promise is extended in the New Testament to anyone who is willing to believe and to live as though Jesus is king of this world. And we can read about this progression in Colossians chapter 2. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Baptism is the work of God, not man. It is not only a sign of the believer's commitment to God, but it is a sign and seal of God's promise to save all who do not reject their baptism by refusing to trust in Christ. Although Paul speaks of baptism as a symbol of death, burial and resurrection earlier in Romans chapter 6, to the Corinthian Christians he describes it as a symbol of becoming clean. You were washed, he says to them. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is demonstrating that it is possible to speak about baptism in more than one way. And perhaps this is something that we can learn from. My decision to follow Jesus wasn't a one-time event that happened long ago that I marked with baptism. My decision to follow Jesus is a constant thing. I've decided today to follow Jesus and hopefully tomorrow and I'll continue to decide every day for the rest of my life to follow him. While some Christians focus on the receiving of grace through believers' baptism, others focus on the giving of grace through infant baptism. So is baptism a seal of a covenantal belonging or a sign of our human faith and decision to follow him? Well, can't it be both? I believe that it should be both. Baptism isn't a mark of the end of the journey. It's the beginning of one. We decided to baptise Emily in the end because we were fully intending to raise her in the faith. But that isn't the end of her journey of faith, is it? She will continue to be given grace from God as long as she chooses to accept it. It's two sides to the same coin. Grace and faith. God's promise and our response to that promise. When we baptised Emily, it marked that she received the gift of God's grace. But it is a gift that needs to be opened and enjoyed, or else it's like a cheque that's never been cashed. If any of you were there the day that Emily was baptised, then you've also made a promise to help her as she grows to continue to choose to open God's gift of grace. And that's what I want to think about for a few minutes as we finish. What does baptism mean for us as a community? How does it affect the way that we do church? And what does it look like in our approach to children's spirituality? Because as you'll know, we do baptise children here. And if they become full members then, what does that look like? I recently came across a method that is used to teach music to children 
And I believe it has many parallels to how we as a church who do baptise infants should be thinking about how we might ensure that those children have the best possible chance to grow in their faith. It was something I'd never heard of before, but it's a fascinating and immersive way of teaching called the Suzuki Method. Shinichi Suzuki was a violinist, an educator who devoted his life to the development of the method he calls the mother tongue approach to learning, or the Suzuki method as it has become known today. Suzuki based his method on a single observation. Children develop the ability to speak in their native language easily and enthusiastically. If you're raised in England, in an English-speaking family, then you will naturally learn to speak English. But as many of us will know, it is much more difficult to learn a second language later in life. Children aren't thought of as being talented for learning to speak their mother tongue. Instead, we understand that the child's environment is responsible for the child's ability. For nearly a century, Suzuki's approach has produced some of the world's finest musicians. So what makes it different? what are some of the key components of the Suzuki method? Well, here are a few of the highlights. An early beginning to learning. Parental involvement in the learning process. Constant encouragement for the child. Learning together with others. Regular listening to music. And learning to play by ear and delaying learning to read music. Now, that is clearly about learning music, but when I heard about this, it really resonated in so many ways with how Anna and I want to raise Emily in faith. And I began to think that it has a lot to teach us about how we raise our baptised children as full members of our church, how we might help them to grow in knowledge and love of God, and how as they grow in faith, we might journey with them and perhaps learn a little something ourselves. So let's look at each of those elements a little closer. An early beginning. Suzuki students begin training between the ages of two and six, when so many of the building blocks of everything we will later become are being developed. Now this clearly doesn't need very much reinterpretation. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6 says, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old they will not turn from it. So yeah, an early beginning. But actually the next step is so very important. Parent involvement. For Suzuki, to really embed the learning, the environment should be just like it was when a child learns to speak. Parents should be involved. In the Suzuki method, parents attend lessons with the child and are often encouraged to actually learn the instrument at the same time as the child making them co-learners and breaking the usual model of teacher-pupil learning. Jesus encouraged us to become like children in our curiosity and wonder. Perhaps as parents and grandparents, aunts, uncles or even as Sunday school helpers, if we could focus on building a relationship with the children, as people journeying and discovering God with them, rather than simply as child and teacher, then that journey is more likely to become something deeply meaningful and beyond a simple head knowledge of something we teach. 
Now, because formal lessons in Suzuki are only once or twice a week, much like lessons that we have with children here at church, parents are told that they must be the home teacher and that it's their responsibility to nurture the child's musical development on a daily basis at home. And I think it's just the same for the children we baptise. We as a church, as children's leaders, and me as youth minister, can only do so much in one hour a week, if we're lucky. For the children in your lives, you must be the home teachers. And remember, that doesn't mean you have to have all the answers, but instead, it can be a chance for you as an adult and them as children to go on a journey together. And the next step is constant encouragement. Suzuki noticed that children develop language skills without self-consciousness or fear. Because they receive positive attention for every effort to speak, no matter how basic. Every mama and dada is met with as much enthusiasm as if they've just performed a masterpiece. You see, children care about what the important adults in their life care about. We may kid ourselves about what matters most to us for them, but there is no kidding the child itself. Children know what a parent's priority is for them. So, if we really mean what we promise when we baptise our children here at Christchurch, then we've got to really think about whether we want them to live and grow within God's family as much as we want them to get a good education or a successful job or to be accomplished on a musical instrument. Of course, these things are far from mutually exclusive. But as I said, children know what matters most to their parents and we need to encourage them to grow in their faith. The next core principle expands it out to all of us as a community, the social environment. Suzuki understood that the motivation to learn language grows from a desire for social inclusion. In addition to private lessons, children learning the Suzuki way participate in regular group lessons, summer camps and social gatherings where children informally perform for parents and friends. And because of this whole child approach, the children are able to learn from and are motivated by each other. And this is something that we all need to understand about baptism. As I mentioned before, all of us in the congregation make promises as well. Baptism isn't just between the child or adult and God. In fact, it's more than just between them and the parents and the godparents on top. Baptism is completely communal. We do it as a community. In 1 Corinthians, we are told that baptism links us all together. There is one Lord, one faith and one baptism. Baptism unites us with the body of Christ throughout the world and throughout all of time. When we are baptised, we don't just get God. We get the whole family whether we like it or not. Our faith isn't supposed to be a private thing, nor is it even primarily a family thing. It is a whole family of God thing, which is why what we do together is so vitally important. We want Christchurch to be like a second home for our children. That's why we've built our new halls with such a massive focus on them, 
And that's why we run the groups that we run in more normal times. Faith and learning about God is best done together. The next point on the list is regular listening. Children hear their native languages constantly and casually as they grow up. They learn words because they hear them spoken hundreds of times by others. So, for Suzuki, listening to music every day is a vital part of kindling the child's passion for music. It's often said that faith is caught, not taught. Children learn from what they see others doing, which I'll be the first to admit is a pretty scary thought. They are often our harshest critics when they can see an inconsistency between what we teach them and the choices we make. Integrity matters so much if we are going to raise our children in faith. But more than that, putting our faith into practice is a really inspiring thing for them to see. If the children in our church can see us adults modelling what it means to follow Jesus, if when they look to us they can see the fruit of the Spirit in action, then that will have a really powerful effect on them. But watching others' example isn't enough on its own. Which leads to the final point. Playing by ear and delayed reading. Suzuki realised that children learn to read after their ability to talk has been well established. In the same way, he believed that children should develop basic technical competence on their instruments before being taught to read music. There will always be time for us to learn more about the technical or theological aspects of our faith. I'm 35, and in some ways I feel like I'm just at the beginning. My faith is a constant evolution. Who here has it all figured out? If you think you do, you're wrong. But not knowing or understanding everything doesn't mean that we can't live our faith out in practice. Suzuki students can play plenty of songs long before they can read any music at all. And being young shouldn't stop children finding ways to live out their faith. Watching others demonstrating God's love and grace and forgiveness is a wonderful way for a child to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But if we provide them with the opportunities to serve and encourage them to live out these kingdom values themselves then they can have a vibrant and living faith long before they are able to articulate it. Being a Christian is far more than just a head knowledge after all. Our hope for the children that we baptise here at Christchurch is that more than learning memory verses and listening to biblical stories, being part of a thriving, growing community of faith will both teach them and inspire them to live as members of the family of God, putting his kingdom first, living out their faith and sharing it with others. We hope that what they learn here will become second nature to them because of the environment, example of the parent and the community through which they've learned. So may we be a church that lets the little children come to God and not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these.